Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, it is election day and investors have their various scenarios for how this could play out and how different outcomes could impact the markets. We're going to speak with Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist for Invesco. They have over $1 trillion in assets under management, so they are in all of the markets. Christina, thanks so much for joining us again. We always appreciate having you on here. What kind of, what's your base case scenario for when we wake up tomorrow morning? How are you thinking that this might play out? Well, I have to say, and Paul, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. I have to say that market strategists learn along, uh, early in their careers <laughs> never to prognosticate about elections. So I have no base case scenario in terms of the election outcome. All I have is, is if this happens, then we expect this to happen. And so if we were to see a Biden sweep, we would expect to see uh, some, uh, probably the largest fiscal stimulus package of any potential scenario. Um, but we would also expect to see uh, more controls on uh, the spread of the virus. Uh, so we would expect more of the cyclical parts of the market to perform well. If we were to see a Trump uh, win, we would assume he would keep the Senate as well, um, and we would expect some kind of a relief rally for the negative assets associated with Joe Biden. So, for example, traditional energy would be one that would probably come under pressure if Biden were to win. And then, of course, if there is a contested result of some kind, we would expect gold and treasuries to perform well, and, and perhaps the Japanese yen. Uh, so um, not prognosticating on the election, just have our scenarios laid out for what happens in the case of a particular election outcome. I just want to point out a headline that crossed the Bloomberg in the last few minutes. The U.S. early voting topped 100 million ballots, according wow. to the latest data from the elections project. So that's pretty phenomenal. The first time ever that 100 million ballots have happened early. Christina, is there consensus? So there may not be consensus on what percentage you know, chances this outcome happens or what percentage chance this outcome happens. But is there a consensus on how the markets will react in any given scenario? Well, I think there's a consensus that in a contested election, that would be a worst case scenario for markets. As we know, markets don't like any form of uncertainty. And that, of course, uh, includes and uh, is especially the case in presidential elections. So that would be uh, an environment where we'd likely see a stock market sell-off. In fact, we could go back to 2016 and uh, get a little taste of what we might see in 2020 with a contested election. Because recall, that night, uh, the conventional wisdom was that markets were surprised and disappointed with a Trump win, um, and that's why stocks sold off. I would argue that, in fact, what happened was that markets were nervous because Hillary Clinton didn't concede on the night of the election. She didn't actually give her concession speech until the next morning. So we got a taste of that fear of a contested election, uh, and we saw stocks sell off. So that's, I think, what is most likely if we see a contested election this time around. You know, there's still so much uncertainty, I guess, um, around this election at this stage. Are you surprised that we're seeing the stock market behave the way it is today, up 2.5%? I am surprised. 
And that says to me that the stock market, it, stock market is expecting a decisive victory. Um, it might be disappointed, but that's certainly the way it's behaving right now. And I'm shocked that there doesn't seem to be a lot of hesitation with that. Um, but sometimes the stock market knows better. Christina, how long do you wait before you put on a trade in the event the outcome is clear? So in the event that we know what's going to happen in January, do you put one on immediately? Do you, do you wait until January? Well, I have to give the caveat that we uh, always encourage long-term investing mindsets because most investors have a long time horizon. But the reality is that if we go back in history, what we often see is moves made in advance of an administration coming into office. Um, it's, it's really funny, but a lot of the things you would expect to see when a president is in office doesn't happen. Uh, it's anticipated, and there are moves made before they come in. Um, but in fact, the result is quite different. And I'll give you a perfect example. There was so much nervousness and apprehension around healthcare stocks uh, before uh, the Obama administration came into office. And in fact, what we saw was that healthcare was one of the top three performing sectors for several years during uh, President Obama's time in office. Similarly, there was a lot of excitement about energy uh, in advance of President Trump coming into office. Uh, there were a lot of policies that he was promoting that would be supportive of, of traditional energy, of fossil fuels. And in fact, energy over the last several years has been the worst performing sector in the S&P 500. So quite often, those moves we see are made in advance. Uh, it's akin to uh, buy on the rumor, sell on the news. Remind us why healthcare didn't perform so well. Was it that the market didn't anticipate that the president would be able to get the Affordable Care Act through or that the Affordable Care Act would be bad somehow for healthcare stocks? There was concern that the Affordable Care Act would be bad for a lot of healthcare stocks, and that's why we saw a, a lot of, of. Even as it expanded the base of customers? It did. Um, there were particular concerns uh, about uh, specific industries, and we could very well see that again. And there are concerns today about what might happen to pharmaceuticals uh, in, a, in a Biden administration. So we might very well see something akin to that now as well. Um, but again, I have to say that quite often these trades are relatively short-lived. And when uh, a president actually does take office, uh, we can see a very different sector performance than we would have expected and what would seem intuitive. Such a great reminder because uh, it can be hard sometimes to remember exactly what happened four years ago and and, and before that and, and after that. Christina Hooper is Invesco's chief global market strategist, reminding us there that all sorts of sectors uh, have potential moves ahead of them. Time now to welcome somebody who knows a lot about elections and politics and this landscape in particular. Wendy Schiller joins us. She of Brown University, of course, and a friend to the program and to uh, the the station, really, chair of political science again at Brown University. Wendy, what is your base case now? Uh, Bonnie, just get right to it. Yes. (laughs) Um, I, I think... Here's what I'm, I, I mean, I, I think we'll, we'll know from some congressional races, I think, signaling earlier than even the presidential races. We know that there's a lot of uh, people who were elected in 2018 in what we call competitive swing districts, like Virginia, for example. Uh, we have Illinois. We have a couple of races in Texas. 
that look really tight and are surprisingly competitive. We have a couple in Minnesota. You know, if things start to swing in congressional districts sooner uh, for the Democrats, then you start to think, okay, maybe Biden will have a very good night. Uh, But, you know, we'll know about Florida. We'll know about North Carolina. We'll know about Arizona. And we'll know about Georgia probably before midnight tonight. And if all of those swing for Trump, if Trump looks really healthy in those states and looks like he could win, then I think things get very, very dicey for Biden. So that's the big sort of barometer. Biden only has to win one of those states, you know, one of those four states or look like he's in in the lead, in a considerable lead in one of those states for him to sort of have a more relaxed night. But if he if Trump wins all of them or looks like he's going to win all of them, I think that that tells us that this sort of blue wave we thought might emerge isn't going to emerge the same way. So. Professor, how do you think the Senate will shake out? Is there, in fact, uh, you know, the markets are kind of suggesting here today that uh, a blue wave may, in fact, uh, be in the cards. How do you think that might go in the Senate? That, that, that's a great question, Paul, because you think about the Senate and you think, you know, Mitch McConnell is totally immune this time. You would have thought if there's a big blue wave, you know, the guy who's really been the poster boy uh, for the campaign against the Republicans controlling the Senate is Mitch McConnell, and he's going to probably breeze to reelection. So I'm a little suspicious of that big blue wave for the Senate. Iowa looks neck and neck. You know, we had a recent poll that's very credible that looks like Joni Ernst can pull it out and stay. You know, if Cal Cunningham can win in North Carolina, that suggests probably that the Democrats might get to 51 if they can win uh, Maine as well. They're probably going to win Arizona, probably going to win Colorado and lose Alabama. So they're looking at probably minimally a 51-49 Republican or a 50-50-51-49 Democrat. So I think that's where, it's, you know, we don't know. And I think that's where North Carolina becomes so important, even even if we don't know Biden-Trump. You know, if Cal Cunningham looks like he's really going to win that race, that suggests better things for the Democrats across the board for the Senate. Say some of that again, Wendy. You say Arizona is definitely going to go Democrat. Texas, what did you say about Texas? Oh, no, no. So I think Arizona for Mark Kelly, I think he's he's been polling very consistently ahead of Martha McSally. But you can imagine, let's say, people voting for Mark Kelly, a former astronaut, um, you know, and not voting for Joe Biden. You know, voting for Kelly because they want him over Martha McSally and then voting for Trump in Arizona. So you can see the Democrats winning the Senate in Arizona, but not winning the the presidential race. Um, And Texas is, you know, shocking, right? The the turnout in Texas has been absolutely shocking. And uh, but it looks like John Cornyn's comfortably ahead of Edgar, the the um, the challenger there. But uh, I think the, the issue is that Trump is only basically one point ahead in Texas which is just, you know, if you think about politics, just stunning. Same with Georgia. And Georgia will be interesting because if Purdue does not get uh, 50% or more against Ossoff, then you've got two runoff elections in Georgia in January. And I think that's really going to be some interesting voting dynamics. So it's possible the Senate Democrats could ultimately end up with a 51 or 52 majority. But I still think it's a bit of a long shot. So, Professor, if the presidential election... Uh, becomes contested. What is your kind of base case for how it may play out? I think we could be faced with an unprecedented historic situation. I think, you know, if we have a tie, for example, uh, if in the Electoral College in December it's actually a tie, it goes to the newly elected House, which is expected to uh, be more Democratic. However, the Republicans still control uh, more votes in state delegations than the Democrats, and that probably isn't going to change. So you could conceivably have literally the House electing or reelecting President Trump. But in the Senate, if it's 51-49 with the new Senate and it's new Democrats, then they may elect Kamala Harris. 
uh, as vice president. I mean, it's really <laughs> quite, I mean, it's stunning. It's a really stunning thing. So I think so many things have changed already in 2020. Whether Trump gets reelected or not is obviously monumental. But even if he gets reelected, I think the Democrats have shown they know how to mobilize voters. And I think they've shown that some of these states have changed a lot in terms of demographics. And they are going to be more competitive moving forward, which changes the nature of politics going to 2022. Because we know that politicians look at the next election the minute this election is over. And so when we start to think about what the balance of power might be in the Senate and the House in 2022, these gains that Democrats appear to be making among voters in these states changes a lot of the dynamics, which will probably change some of the policies coming out of Congress. Yeah, I mean, it's really the African-American vote, right, Wendy? And uh, how much more of that we'll see we're already seeing, you know, a, a lot more engagement. Yeah, so I think African-American vote has always been key. You know, North Carolina and Georgia had about 64% African-American turnout in 2016. It wasn't enough because those numbers were not hit in in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania among African-American voters. And, they, and, you know, they may or may not get there. If they get there, I think Biden wins relatively easily. But what's interesting is suburban white women uh, of all educational levels, seem to be really vehemently at the moment against Trump in the polls. And it could be that instead of the black vote really being key in the Midwest, it ends up being white women, which would be really an interesting shift. It, 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 you know, it mirrors 2018 when white, the majority of white women voted for Democratic candidates, but it would change the nature of the Democratic coalition if that were the deciding factor. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a turnout, uh, particularly in particular counties in Michigan, uh, where we still have a lot of people who are going to vote in person, and certainly in Pennsylvania. Wendy, we're really out of time, but I, I'm desperate to ask you, given the amount of, of, of judges at the state level, municipal level, and, and, and obviously federal level that the president has overseen get on the court, does that give him an advantage in any court cases? It may, although you saw in Texas, uh, the Texas State Supreme Court uh, refused to throw out 127,000 ballots in Harris County, Democratic County. And a George W. Bush judge just yesterday, a federal judge, district court judge, also refused to throw those ballots out. So I don't know that you're going to see the kind of rulings that Trump expects Mm. to sort of throw out hundreds of thousands of ballots uh, that were cast presumably for Democrats. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. We know you're busy today on this election day. Wendy Schiller, chair of the political science department at Brown University, located in Providence, Rhode Island. We really appreciate uh, you coming on. And and, Vani, it's going to be a fascinating day, a fascinating evening. And I wonder what we're going to be talking about tomorrow, but uh, we will see. Well, it is a decidedly risk-on day today. As Greg Jarrett was just reporting, equity markets up over 2%. Bonds selling off here. Let's get a sense of you know, what this means in the bigger picture. We could do that with our good friend Nick Kolos, co-founder Data Trek Research. Uh, Nick, thanks so much for joining us here. We had a big sell-off in uh, the equity markets last week. This week, kind of a turnaround here and a big move today. What are you reading into it, if anything? You know, I think the thing we can take away from today and yesterday as well is that the market is looking forward to having the election behind us and beginning to focus on fundamentals, which during this earnings season have been remarkably good. We're at really record or near record levels for earnings beats and earnings amounts, and the profits are coming through, but everybody's a little bit cautious about what comes next, and so estimates aren't rising. But the baseline that we're having right now in terms of earnings is is excellent. That said, if the pandemic continues to ravage the nation as it is now and we don't get widespread vaccine uh, you know, delivery, let's say, until sometime next year, can results continue to impress? 
Yeah, it's it's an excellent question, and, uh, and unfortunately, we have to go back to the political sphere to answer some of that because the missing link in terms of earnings for the next couple of quarters is going to be fiscal stimulus. Monetary stimulus is less uh, an important factor because it's already so accommodative. We really have to focus on whether or not we get a, another CARES Act, and that is in the purview of the Beltway. And I think we have to really worry a bit about repeating, say, 2008, where we had an election outcome, but the election outcome created a change of power, which delayed the uh, Recovery Act until February of 2009. And that's why the market didn't really bottom until March of 2009. So I am cautious about that particular scenario that we just don't get stimulus until D.C. sees a change of power. Yeah, Nick, the, you know, the other, obviously the issue out there, arguably the biggest issue uh, is the pandemic and the, and the numbers are just going in the absolute wrong direction. And we're seeing European economies uh, shutting down to varying degrees. And some people are concerned that, uh, you know, the U.S. is just a matter of weeks behind Europe here. If that, if these numbers were coming across the tape in March and April, this market would presumably be down significantly. What do you think the market, or how do you think the market's viewing this second slash third wave globally? You know, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. You know, the, the European situation is is bad, and, and it's bad for a bunch of different reasons. The U.S. has a little bit of a different situation. You're right. The, the, um, the virus is definitely taking a toll, uh, but I think there's hopefully enough awareness to understand that particularly in places like New York where we're all based, you know, there is a lot of mitigation efforts still underway, still a lot more work from home. Europe did not really embrace work from home the way the U.S. did. And so I am hopeful that the U.S. economy can continue to move along in conjunction with some stimulus that avoids the worst economic outcomes uh, of what's going to happen in Europe, which I agree with you are, are pretty profound. So what's the base case, Nick, and what industries would you be recommending keeping a close eye on if your base case scenario does come to pass? So the base case scenario is actually bullish. You know, it does require more stimulus, but it is positive. And against that backdrop, we like industrials very much. They've had a very good quarter. And then we think there's a lot of earnings leverage in industrials, large cap industrials going into 2021. We also like small caps over large caps. The one area we're cautious on is technology. Tech has had such a strong year that it's coming up against what we call very tough cups. It's very hard to get earnings leverage when you have a blowout year and the next year goes back to normal. So we don't like technology right now, but do like cyclicals like industrials and small caps. We'd also stay away from financials because of the very low rate environment. A a 10-year yield that goes back to 1% just isn't good enough to generate a lot of marginal earnings for the financial sector. So it's interesting, Nick, you know, I think a lot of people are uh, kind of trying to figure out when they do that rotation and, you know, out of those big tech growth names that have worked so well for so long, arguably since the financial crisis. But it appears that the market is, in fact, already beginning that rotation. Is that what you're seeing? Yes, absolutely right. That is uh, that's exactly what we're seeing, and it's for all the right reasons. It might be a little bit counterintuitive to see companies report blowout earnings and the market turn their back on them, but at the same time, you have to look forward. How does tech generate the same kind of earnings comps and earnings leverage next year that it did this year? If things, as we all hope, begin to go back to normal, you know, you had 
absolutely tremendous demand for MacBooks and iPads. iPhones might take some of the slack up in Q4 for Apple, but what are you looking for next year? How are you going to replicate the, the upgrade cycle that we got in 2020 and 2021? I don't think you can. And, and Nick, just you know, very quick answer. Does any of this depend on who's the next president or what color the next Congress is? You know, it does to some degree. I would tell you that, um, oddly enough, markets don't like gridlock as much as the cliche seems to say. The market does better since World War II when either Democrats or Republicans hold the White House and Congress. A split decision isn't necessarily a great outcome. Yeah, that's so interesting because we hear that quite uh, a lot, the, yeah. the opposite that is. Nick Colas, thank you. Nick Colas is co-founder of Data Check Research, or Data Trek Research, I should, say, I should say, we all know that. Data Trek Research, Nick Colas, co-founder of that. And of course, Paul, you know, that's we hear that quite a bit, you know, markets yeah. like gridlock, markets like gridlock. But, you, you know, you have to wonder why that is or what the origin for that sort of... Uh, yeah, I love uh, having Andy Nick on. Is. He really puts things, uh, I think, very clearly here, and he is clearly in that rotation camp into cyclicals. Well, it is time to have a look at the bond market because there again we are seeing a few basis points in moves. It would appear to be a risk on move, but we'll ask the expert. Ira Jersey is Chief Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence and he joins us now. Ira, what is the bond market saying to you today? Yeah, it is a risk-on move, like you mentioned, Vani. I think importantly, um, I, th- I think the bond market's uh, giving us two sig- two important signals. Firstly, is if we close where we are right now at around 88 basis points on the 10-year yield, we are now targeting the um, the, the June yield high, so uh, somewhere near uh, 96 basis points. So, so we're looking at maybe another little bit of a sell-off, and I think that that could happen pretty quickly if there's kind of an uncontested election and if uh, you know, Joe Biden wins the presidency. I think regardless of who uh, who controls the Senate, I think if the White House changes hands and it's not a contested election, I think that's a little bit more of a risk on. And for bond yields, that means slightly higher bond yield. So where do you think the 10-year could go? Uh, I arrive, you know, we've spoken to some folks over the last day or so that says, you know, you know, one and a quarter uh, is not out of the discussion, at least for the near term. Do you do you have that kind of uh, sense? Yeah, I think one and a quarter, 1.27 percent is uh, it, it was the high back in uh, uh, the, the yield high back in March. I, I think that that's uh, that's possible to get there. I don't think near term. I don't think that's a, okay. a end of 2020 type of thing because uh, I, I think in order to get to those type of levels, we have to increase optimism on what's the future of growth. You have to have more optimism on whether or not we'll have a vaccine in the first half of next year. Like like, like there was a time when I thought that in the first half of of 2021, we could get to those type of levels. But that was predicated on an early vaccine release. And the fact that we don't have, um, it doesn't look like we're going to necessarily get an early vaccine um, and uh, a quicker return to normalcy. I don't know how how we get there. Now, it's not out of the question, though, Paul, because one of the uh, pieces of news that we're going to get tomorrow morning is uh, Treasury supply. So how much in terms of bonds is the Treasury Department going to have to issue? Now, now they've decreased their bond issuance forecast for this quarter because there wasn't a fiscal stimulus prior to the election, um, but they incre- they basically moved that back to the first quarter of next year. So if we do get another trillion dollars, tr- you know, or I should say another $2 trillion stimulus plan in the first uh, quarter of next year, they would have to increase uh, additional uh, bond issuance to fund it, and that could be an impetus to push yields above 1% once again on the 10-year yield. 
Well, funny you should mention, because we also have an FOMC meeting this week, Ira, and while typically the Fed wouldn't try and do anything at all to influence markets the week of an election, you have to wonder if at some point in the future the Fed chair won't have to roll back a little bit what he said about not raising rates for years. <laughs> well, I, I do think that that's, uh, that's still in the cards. I, I don't see uh, the, the Federal Reserve hiking interest rates probably until at least 2023, even in an optimistic scenario. Um, and, and, you know, that's not completely dissimilar to what happened after the uh, the great financial crisis. The fact is, is that we'll probably have, you know, growth that's not going to be particularly high. You're not going to have inflation that's going to spike up. That you're going to need to arrest that by increasing front end interest rates. And and I, I think that the Federal Reserve would would not mind the yield curve to steepen a little. But I also think that they're worried that if because of all this supply and you have better growth expectations, if the yield curve were to move significantly, so the, those numbers that Paul mentioned, if you get above one and a quarter percent very quickly on the 10-year yield, the Federal Reserve could take some action like buying more long-term bonds instead of short-term bonds in order to uh, slow down the pace of increase in, in long-term bond yields. Um, you know, that's not something that traditionally they've done, but as part of their monetary policy framework, they want to ensure that interest rates are low and borrowing costs are low for at least a little while until we get over the hump of, um, uh, of growth and we start to see job gains that are consistent and wage gains that are consistent with their um, with their dual mandate of full employment as well as stable inflation. Mm. So, Ira, you mentioned, you know, buying uh, the Fed, buying bonds. Give us a sense of kind of what their activity has been to date. Have they been in the market? Have they been active? Is, or is it just more uh, a little bit of a show? Oh, well, they've been buying every day. Um, okay. so they've been buying $80 billion a month of treasury securities, but most of those treasuries that they're buying are, are five years and, and shorter in maturity. So, so there's not a lot of market risk in, in, that, um, in that part of the market. So, so while they're buying a lot of bonds on a dollar basis, they're not buying a lot of market risk. So one of the things that we think is possible, and, and, and we'll be talking about this in one of our, our research reports later this week, is they, they can reduce the amount of, of those short-term bonds that they're buying to buy longer-term securities, uh, again, in order to buy more market risk and make sure that uh, the market doesn't sell off in an uncontrolled fashion, uh, which is a risk. I mean, when you think about what happened during the taper tantrum and, and even in 2009, um, after, uh, uh, after we hit the yield lows, you wound up having very significant increases in 10-year yields, and that did have an effect of, of slowing down the economy a little bit, and uh, people were a little bit less likely to borrow money when uh, 10-year bond yields you know, rose by 100 basis points in, in just a couple of months. Ira Jersey, thanks so much uh, for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts here on all things in the bond market. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joining us here. A little bit of a lift to uh, rates, a little bit of a steepening, Vani, to the yield curve here just over the last several days. Yes, for sure. And uh, we did get that big move last week. Don't forget, Paul. Yep. Yeah, very interesting. So we'll have to see how the, the bond market uh, reacts here throughout the day. Uh, and then, of course, uh, tomorrow and uh, over the next several days, we'll see, you know, descent, get a sense of how uh, the election is going and, and to what extent it's contested. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.